All right, if you would grab a Bible, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1 is where we'll be focusing our time in this part of our worship. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Good to be with you this morning, and uh, as has been mentioned, we want to welcome those who are not here in person but are joining us online. Uh, We're glad that you have chosen to join us, and uh, we have some brothers and sisters who are sick and uh, who are battling this virus or who are at home out of concern over this virus. We want you to know that we're thinking about you, we're praying for you, and uh, you're here with us even if you're not able to be with us, and we're thankful for that. And uh, we love you, and we can't wait till the time when we can be back together again, uh, all in person. Uh, But uh, we're thinking about you, and uh, I just want to say that. I hope that everyone had a a good opportunity, as uh, Kurt mentioned, uh, to be thoughtful and thankful over the course of this past week. One of the things that I love most about our nation is the holiday of Thanksgiving, uh, that we have a set-aside time where we know this is a time and opportunity to give thanks, and that what we have and who we are is not strictly our doing, uh, but is a gift. And so we remember that, and I hope that you've had a good week uh, in thinking about those things. I want to remind you as we start this morning that Paul tells Titus that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous For good works. Jesus didn't just die to save and collect a people. He wanted a people who had a certain spirit. He wanted a people who were like something. He wants us to be a people who were zealous for good works. So it seemed fitting for me to take some time this morning reminding us of the value and importance of good deeds. What I want to do is talk about what one good deed can do. Many years ago when I was preaching in Mexico, I was riding around with a Mexican preacher and we were talking shop, and, uh, which is kind of hard when you don't know Spanish that well. And, uh, but he was telling me about a sermon that he had preached and his sermon was called, What One Error Can Do. And he had based his sermon on James 2, the passage that says, if you keep the whole law but you're guilty in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. And I remember at the time, I was, I don't know, maybe my early 20s, I remember at the time being a little unsettled by that title and that idea because, for one, I'm always looking for a sermon sermon fodder, always. Uh, And for two, I thought, wow, what a discouraging sermon. Let's talk about how much damage we can do if we mess up one time. Doesn't that sound a little disheartening to you? Well, I want to talk not about how much damage we can do if we possibly get something wrong. I think we've all experienced that. We know what that's like. I want to talk about the opposite. I want to talk about how much good we can do if we get something right. And if things go the way God intends them to go, and if we are sowing seeds of good deeds... I want to show you an example of what one good deed can do. Now, 2 Timothy is written from Roman custody. Things are dire for Paul. He knows that he is soon to die. He has already faced Caesar once. He calls it being rescued from the lion's mouth. And as he writes, Paul is concerned about the people who surround him, who should be his support, abandoning him. He doesn't want Timothy, for example, in verse 8 of chapter 1, to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. 
See, when, when gospel preachers are being singled out for their message and one of them is arrested and goes before Caesar with his life on the line, what does that do to other gospel preachers? How are they going to respond? Paul is nervous about that. Even someone like Timothy who doesn't appear to be with him at the moment. Paul feels that he has been abandoned by many of his co-workers and friends. And so he is writing out of that concern. And there is sort of a dark cloud hanging over 2 Timothy. The dark cloud not only of Paul knowing that he may die soon, but also that a lot of people are failing in a moment of crisis. And so he writes this. This is 2 Timothy 1 and verse 15. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus." So he says in verse 15, all who are in Asia turned away from Paul. He's going to name some names about that. He's going to talk about Alexander the coppersmith. He's going to talk about Demas, who has forsaken me because he loved this present world. But there is one man here that he singles out for the opposite. In verse 16, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So this is a man who came from Ephesus after he had served Paul in Ephesus, we learn in verse 18, and then he had come to Rome to seek Paul out and to refresh him and not be ashamed of his chain. So it seems like something Onesiphorus brings helps Paul. Maybe that's food or money. Maybe it's just that he comes and finds him and is a friend to him and is an encouragement to him. But something happens here that makes Paul perk up. And he says, he often refreshed me. He also says in verse 16, he was not ashamed of my chains, which as I mentioned earlier is what he's concerned Timothy is going to do. Don't be ashamed, he says back in verse 8, of, of the gospel or of me, the prisoner of Christ. So somehow Onesiphorus is not worried about saving his own skin or worried about association with Paul. Verse 17, he says, when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So he seems to have come to Rome specifically to minister to Paul. But the problem is, Paul doesn't seem to have been kept in a public place, you know, where everybody knew where he was. Maybe he's tucked away somewhere. He had to search for him earnestly and find him. So it wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't a light thing. But Paul says, man, it was nice to have somebody actually seek me out instead of actively avoid me. Like those who have turned away from me, he says in verse 15. Then in verse 18, he says, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. There's a play on words here. In verse 17, he says, He, he searched for me and found me, and may the Lord help him find mercy. The finding there works in both ways. So Paul is, is full of gratitude for Onesiphorus. It comes out in several of these wish statements. He says in verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to his household. And then in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. He did me a good deed, and I want God to remember that. I am thankful for it. So here you have a good deed. One man helping one man in one short period of time. And I want us to think about what that one good deed can do. First, a good deed can please God. Paul expects God to be pleased with Onesiphorus 
and his ministry. That's why he says in verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Did you notice he says, I want God to grant mercy not just to the man, but verse 16 says to his household. Because not only is Paul acknowledging that when a man makes a sacrifice by coming all the way from Ephesus to Rome, it's a sacrifice not just for him but for his family, but he is also saying, I think God's going to know what he did and the impact it had. Paul is not saying that when we do a good deed, we suddenly deserve mercy. We don't deserve mercy. That's the nature of mercy. But he is saying, I want God to remember this good deed and the sacrifice he made and his family made for me. I wonder sometimes how God looks at his world. You know, we look at this, this world in a certain way. I think we look at it in the uh, what's newsworthy way. You know, you look at the day and you say, well, I wonder what's happened today. Well, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. Take any day in Little Rock. Bad things happen. People get hurt. People commit crimes. Tragedies occur. I wonder if God looks at his world that way. Or I wonder if God looks at it in the exact opposite way. Where he looks at the world and he sees all the good that is happening in the world. All the little things that don't make headlines. Nobody's reporting them in a newspaper. You know, the kind things. The little signs of love. The way we make each other smile. The gifts that we give. The words of encouragement. Small things. And Paul is saying, God, if you miss this one. If, you, if you've forgotten, there was a man who did a good deed for me. And it refreshed my spirit. And he was not ashamed of me. And I want you to remember him for good. And I want to especially impress on us that God sees and is pleased by our good deeds even when they're small. Even when they don't ever make anybody notice us. And the world can just pass by completely ignorant of the things we do and say. I want to show you that about our God. Let's look over in Matthew chapter 10 for a moment. Leave your marker here. We'll come back in just a moment. Let's go over to Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, Jesus is sending his disciples out on what's called the limited commission because they're only going to the Jewish people and not to Gentiles yet. And as he sends them out, he's giving them some things to expect and things to remember and that sort of thing. And he says this at the end of the limited commission that is to me a, a reminder of how much God acknowledges our work and our good deeds. Matthew 10 and verse 40. Matthew 10, 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet... Because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Did you notice how we moved from they're going out preaching to now Jesus says, oh, by the way, let me talk to you about people who receive you. Verse 40, if they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive the Father, him who sent me. 
Now that's awesome because what is receiving? Receiving is not the same as going out and preaching. It's not the same as these disciples who are going out. They didn't even have a wallet. They didn't have anything to, to sustain them. They're just going out and hoping God will provide. But these are the people who all they do is say, you come stay with me. Or I'm going to listen to your message. I support you. I appreciate you. And he says they receive you and they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive the Father. And then verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. So do you see in this, the the cup of cold water, Jesus is saying even the smallest thing. There's not much to that. And yet there is something to that in the terms of reward that Jesus says. He is saying, the disciples, you guys are not the only important ones. It is not just those who preach and prophesy who are the important ones. When you receive someone, when you do good, God notices. That's what he is saying, even if the good is small, even if it's a cup of cold water. God is pleased when we do the little things out of kindness and love for him and love for others. This is the God who sees the widow giving two pennies. He says, that's what I want. This is the God who hears the prayers of Cornelius, sees his gifts to the poor, and it says, your prayers have come up before God. This is the God who sees the incredible generosity of the Macedonians, and he says they gave out of their poverty. This is the God who sees the church in Smyrna and says, yes, you're poor, but, parentheses, you are rich. This is the God who sees the little things and is pleased by them. And when this God sees a man traveling to help his friend and coming into a foreign city and searching diligently for him and finding him and supporting him and refreshing him and giving him what he needs... Paul says, God, don't forget him. See the good. Because God notices and God cares and God is pleased. The reason, of course, why good deeds please God is that he made us to do good deeds. This is what we are for. This is Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God prepared these things. God made these things before he even made us. He prepared them beforehand so that we would then fall into the pattern he had made of what he wants men and women to do and to be. God did not make us so that we could be selfish and spend every minute seeking our own pleasure. God did not make us so that we could be sinful and live at the expense of other people. God made us to do good works. And somehow, when we do small things that are acts of kindness and love, God is pleased. Somehow, in some small way, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We live according to what God made us to do and to be. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 1. So a good deed can please God. Second, a good deed can refresh others. In 2 Timothy 1.16, it says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He often refreshed me. It's a fascinating little word. It means to cool or to refresh. In medicine, it was used to talk about treating a wound with fresh air. We would say, 
he was a breath of fresh air for me. He was someone who refreshed me. Now, I, I grew up in Texas, and when you talk about refreshment, I have a really hard time separating refreshment from summer in Texas. What is it to be refreshed? It is to have a cold drink or a moment in the shade, just a little bit of relief. It is exactly what you need. So, Paul has been plagued by desertions. He's scared. He is abandoned by the people who should have encouraged him. And here comes a man who just does the simplest thing. He seeks him out. He ministers to him. He's not ashamed of my chains. He doesn't treat me like a leper. He just is what he should be. He also says in verse 18, in verse 18, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So this is not the first time Onesiphorus has done things for Paul. He is saying, instead, I see when I was in Ephesus, he helped me, and now he came all the way here to Rome to help me. So it speaks to an ongoing, continual relationship that Paul says, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So when we do good deeds, it can do this for other people where we give them new strength, new life. We give them a breath of fresh air. I want to show you this in 1 Samuel 23, how you can see this in the life of David. 1 Samuel 23. We'll come back to 2 Timothy in a minute. Don't forget to leave your marker there. 1 Samuel 23. So this is a, a time when David is on the run from Saul, who, as you know, is increasingly unstable in all of this situation. And Saul tries to get him to fall by his daughter. That plot fails. He kills the priests. All this is falling to pieces, and David surely is wondering, well, I thought I was supposed to be king. I was anointed king. Everything was going so well, and now everything's falling to pieces. And so there is something that happens in 1 Samuel 23 that is, in my view, exactly like what we're reading in 2 Timothy 1. It is about refreshing David. 1 Samuel 23, verse 15. 1 Samuel 23, 15. David saw that Saul had come, to, come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. I want you to notice a couple of things. Now, now Jonathan and David should be rivals. Jonathan is the prince. He is supposed to be king when his dad is gone. And David is the rising star who has already been anointed king. They should be rivals. Saul wants them to be rivals. And he's frustrated with Jonathan that they're not. And yet David and Jonathan are not going to play that game. They are friends. They are the closest of friends. And so when Jonathan sees that David is in trouble and that his dad is the cause, he says, I need to go out and see him. I need to let him know whose team I'm on. I need to encourage him. And so in verse 16, it says that Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. He talked to him and he encouraged him, continue to believe in God's good purposes for you. God is going to take care of you. He strengthened his hand, but he also strengthened his hand in God. He also says some things in verse 17. 
He says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Don't be afraid, David. God's going to take care of this. I'm not going to be a rival to you. Saul also knows that this is not going to happen. Everything is okay. What Jonathan does here seems like a small thing. It's just a conversation between friends. But I want you to see the power that that has. To say that someone comes and strengthens your hand in God is to say that they give you a breath of fresh air to say, I feel better now. I can handle this. I can do this. It is going to be okay. If you zoom out from it, you might say, well, Jonathan doesn't really change anything. I mean, Saul is still pursuing him. Everything is still the same. It's just that now David has some courage he did not have before. That's what good deeds can do, to breathe life into friends. Sometimes our faith and our hope and our spirit are just hanging by a thread. Sometimes we are overwhelmed and tired and worn out and desperate and lonely and anxious and discouraged, and sometimes someone can refresh us. Just a person saying things we already know, expressing care, In those moments, what we need is not somebody to come and solve the problem for us. David doesn't need Jonathan to make war on his dad. All we need is someone to come and encourage us. Give us the strength not to give up. To talk to us and refresh our spirits. Or, to say it another way, just to strengthen our hands in God. Can I say that another way? What that might mean is that the good deed we can do is not fixing someone else's problem. Sometimes we see one another and we see that there's a desperateness in each other. And we see they're really struggling. And there is a situation that we can't do anything about. Maybe somebody's sick and we can't make them feel better. Or maybe there's a family situation that we can't possibly resolve. What is needed is not someone to come in like Superman, and make everything better. What we need to do is to trust that if we can just refresh people, they can then have the courage to handle their own issues and problems. We can strengthen their hands in God. That's what Onesephorus does. Onesephorus does one good deed, and it makes Paul stronger. Now Paul is ready to face what he has to face, now, if, if all that happens is that Onesephorus strengthens Paul to write 2 Timothy, and now Paul can say, you know what, I feel better. I think I'll write this letter to Timothy. Think about the incredible good that is. One man's kindness now produces a book of the Bible that we still study and are encouraged by. I understand that we look around and we might not see our brothers hanging by a thread. And I am not saying that the only time we need to encourage and refresh people is when they're hanging by a thread. What I am saying is that our contribution, even if it feels minimal or unimportant, can be a game changer for others. I think if we look back at our own lives, we'll see that that's happened for us. That words spoken in the right time, in the right spirit, have encouraged us and refreshed us. So we can do that for one another. That's what one good deed can do. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 1. 
The last thing I want to say is that one good deed can change the world. Now, that may sound overblown, but I want you to hear me out. I think I can make a good case that our small good deeds change the world. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 16. It says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Paul's wording here leads a lot of commentators, probably the majority, to conclude that Onesiphorus is actually dead. First of all, he says in verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, not to him himself. And the only time he is mentioned specifically is in verse 18, where he's talking about him finding mercy from the Lord on the day of judgment. In fact, when Paul concludes 2 Timothy in chapter 4, he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus, not Onesiphorus himself. So it could be, in addition to the fact that all of these terms are in the past tense about things he did before, it could be that Onesiphorus is dead. Now, if Onesiphorus has died, imagine the power that that example, that good deed has now on his family. Because it's, it seems to say that maybe he even died in the attempt or died shortly after doing what Paul says he has done. Well, if Paul is praying for his, or at least wishing good things for his household, this seems a likely assumption that his household is also Christians. Greet the household of Onesiphorus. But they are also Christians who have just seen their father, husband, die, possibly in the act of traveling to Rome to encourage Paul. And if that is the example in your family, that you're the patriarch of your family, has died, and one of his last acts was to travel across the world to render service to Paul, how might you react? when you are threatened with persecution or when someone needs something from you? If that's the example that is laid down and then underscored by the possibility of even dying in that act, when other Christians in Ephesus learn about Onesiphorus and what Paul is saying about him, and they had seen him render service to Paul at Ephesus, and now he has gone across the world to do it in another place. How will it encourage that church? You see, when we do good deeds, they live on even when we are gone. And the memory and the impact of those good deeds doesn't die just because we do. There is a power in that. I am certain that everyone in this room can talk about good deeds you have seen done and still remember that still have an impact on you by people who are no longer living. And if that is the case, those good deeds have changed the world. They have done more than just serve in that moment. They have changed you. And what about those other Christians? You know, Paul is writing this letter to encourage Timothy. And he wants Timothy to act in a certain way. 
and he wants this passage to be an encouragement to Timothy. Be like Onesiphorus, which means that Onesiphorus' example is now used to encourage Timothy. But also, I want you to keep reading with me in chapter 2 here in verse 1. 2 Timothy 2, 1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So he says, Go find faithful men and teach them so that they can teach others. Well, I wonder who is a good example of a faithful man. Well, it's obviously not, verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who turned away from Paul. Who's a good example? Of a faithful man. Well, I know one, maybe the one he's just been talking about in Onesiphorus. These are the men who will be your best teachers and servants. Here is your lasting example of Christian living. Everyone else is scared to be associated with Paul. He is not. A small act with a tremendous impact. Good deeds change the world. Let me say it this way. We often ignore the impact of our good deeds and of others' good deeds. We at least underplay them. But it is those acts of kindness and goodness and warmth and hospitality that live on. We remember them from our parents and our grandparents. We see them in the older folks that we see coming to services, even when it's hard. We see them in the consistency and our brothers and sisters who never seem to give up, even though they might have awful circumstances. We see them in well-timed words. And when you start mapping that out, where that goes, I think it's a surprising thing. I know that without the encouragement of others, even some who have passed on, I would not be preaching. I would not be here. I am certain of it. And I wonder how many lives that impacts, just my life, my family's life, just by something that those people are no longer living, and yet their good deeds have changed my life, changed my family's life, and changed other people who I have impacted through this work. Small thing, big impact, changing the world. Without those good deeds, without that encouragement, I would have struggled to learn how to love and care for other people. I would have struggled overcoming some of the disappointments and hurts of my past had I not seen other people learn to overcome the struggles and disappointments of their past. And so on and on it goes. And when you start to add up the impact of all the good deeds, you really do start talking about changing the world. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, I want to close here. I love the way Paul puts this as he talks about interacting with other people because I think there is a twofold impact of his words. On that surface level, he's going to talk about when people do you wrong and how you respond to them and how you live at peace with them. But there is something deeper here as well that I think will be an encouragement for us as we close the lesson. Romans 12 and verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he talks about, you know, people are going to hurt you. Don't return evil for evil. Don't just do what others do to you. Instead, he says, when others treat you with evil, you respond with kindness. We talked about that on Wednesday. But I want you to notice verse 21 again. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does he mean? He means when we respond with good, we squash some of the evil. And when we respond to evil with evil, we perpetuate the evil. We make it worse. We help it grow. We change the world for the worse. But when we are able to do good instead of evil, we change the world for the better. We overcome evil with good. One good deed can change the world. Don't underestimate the power of your good. The little things in your circles, in your normal, regular day, with your acquaintances and your family and your brethren and your text messages and your social media posts, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, with your friends, what you do can change the world. Well, I don't have a whole application section for this sermon. Let me just say it this way. Let's do good deeds this week as we see the power of one good deed. Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this good time that we could remember and think about your will for our lives. We're thankful for the example of Onesiphorus, and we're thankful that you've preserved it for us. One man who might not be noticed by the world, but who you have recorded and preserved for us for our encouragement. Father, I pray that you will help us to be zealous for good works, to want to show kindness to our brothers and sisters, to be encouragers, to find ways to do good, to lighten others' loads, and to be a source of what is positive in their lives. Father, we pray that you will strengthen us for this task and help us to be busy in thinking about and caring for others. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to this time that we present the invitation of the Lord to come and to know the peace and forgiveness of God. Or if there's some way that we as a congregation can help you to draw nearer to God. If there is a need that you have, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.